Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to bleep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to the movie show with Joel and Ryan. And remember, no matter, just just go, and I will find you. <laughs> um, and uh, or we, I should say we. I mean, one of you know what? One of us will find you. If you're um, going to paraphrase it as terribly as you did, you really need to at least hit the "I will find you" catchphrase. So I approve yeah. of how you did it originally. Okay, yeah, that's what I figured. I'm like, I, I, I it, it's going to not make sense if I say it, we I'm will sure find it didn't you. make sense to 92. No, it of didn't. The people, no, it, but at um, least yeah. somebody got it because when yeah. you came time to hit the catchphrase, you at least got that part right. Good job. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. That's what I'm here for. We just prop All each right. other up on the movie show with Joel and Ryan. Absolutely. And <laughs> and you, dear listener, we thank you. And you know what? We're here to prop you up. Yeah. Because you listening to our show, you know, that makes you a great person. It's our whole reason for existence. Yeah. You get a chef's kiss, dear listener. If we, uh, if, so hi, if you I, did a podcast in the forest and nobody was there to hear it when you chopped it down, Actually, that doesn't mm-hmm. make a lot of sense either. That yeah, um, important. The point I, is, the listeners are important. No, that's true. Uh, and we thank you for listening to the movie show with Joel and Ryan. And I am Joel, and I'm Ryan. I'm actually a little yep. ashamed to admit that at this point, but whatever. <laughs> we're, we're on to bigger and better uh, things on the show. We we are indeed. Uh, so yeah, today it is. Uh, we're it is uh, OG style movie show. Um, just the two of us, uh, and we're going to be talking uh, about one of Ryan's favorite directors of all time. Um, I mean, I like him too, but I mean, Ryan is... Yeah, he's Ryan in my top a, 50 or so. Top 50? <laughs> yeah, he's not one of my absolute <laughs> favorites. What's oh, cool well, about he, him, what's cool about him is like a lot of people, what's super cool about him and how he's in a different echelon of storytellers is that he just has this way of doing things that is signature, that is him, his visual style, his type of story, his dialogue. It, you know, he has a voice. We talked about mm-hmm. Richard Donner last week, who I adore, but Richard, he has a, a take on life, but he doesn't have like much of a storyteller's voice. You know, you really can't mm-hmm. tell that the guy who did Lethal Weapon 2 and the guy who did, um, radio flyer are the same guy there's nothing right. there to suggest that that's sure. you know what i mean whereas mm-hmm. michael mann john borman we talked about a few weeks back they they're all just making the same story christopher nolan over and over and over and over again just kind of in a with a slightly different premise and this this cat is he gets top-notch props for that much anyway he's un, it's unmistakable his stuff and i I do love that about him, but we'll talk about why maybe he's not tops in my book, 
but still, oh, okay. a, uh, still a guy whose films I like a lot. Sure. Yeah. There, there are some really good films we're going to do. Uh, we're going to do an old school countdown. We're going to get to that uh, really, really quickly here. We don't really have anything at the top of the show uh, except uh, on the on this day that we are recording. Obviously, this gets released on Sundays if we are uh, both, um, you know, uh, upright. Um, but uh, today, the day that we are recording is dear friend of the show, Michael Klug's birthday. So we just want to send out a, uh, a movie show with Joel and Ryan uh, birthday message. We love you, Michael. And thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. You, you, yeah, you know what you get, Michael? You get the movie show with Joel and Ryan. Stamp of approval. There you go. And uh, all right. So, uh, all right. Uh, let, let's just jump right into, um, we're going to talk about uh, director uh, Michael Mann. And this is our list of the top 10-ish. The top 10 Plus. Michael Mann. <laughs> What's that? Top 10 and everything else we could squeeze in there. Yeah, top 10 and then a bunch of other titles that we thought, well, we got to mention these. Okay, well, uh, it's <laughs> top 10. Ourselves. No, it's a top 10. Yeah. It is a top 10. Uh, top 10 uh, films of Michael Mann. Woo. 10 It is a top 10. That's how we sequenced it. We might come to regret that later. I've been enjoying these where we've, uh, you know, where we go through them chronologically and then just rank them at the end or whatever. I think that's easier. Yeah. This guy's, we're, I actually, we structured this as a top 10 for those of you who care what our thinking is, because I think it works good as one, but bi biographically, we're going to be jumping around a bit, which we'll see if that works so great. I don't know. Yeah. You know, yeah. The thing about doing them chronologically is you can sort of see where, you know, the development or where, you know, where what's going on, you know, it's, so yeah, yeah, sort of the evolution of how there, a filmmaker. Exactly. There's an artistic development to it. And there's also a commercial development. Like there's a, there's a career, you know, thing to it. Or in the case of like John Grisham adaptations or Tom Clancy adaptation, there's this, how every movie is a, an answer to the previous one or, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you won't get that so much, but again, I, and we won't be deep diving these. Obviously we don't have time, but more so there's no, these films don't benefit much. I think by a blow by blow plot explanation, the way some mm -hmm. stories do. Cause like I said at the top, it's, it really is his voice and it's his overall sort of human I uh, dare I say masculine philosophy that hangs over each of these stories. And it's what version of that are we watching and what does it say about that? That's mm -hmm. important. So we'll see, we'll see what we can get into as far as that goes. But before yeah. we even get into, get to number 10, there's a couple little projects that don't make the top 10 that we have to talk about. we benefit that one of them we've already talked about. So we don't have to spend much time mm -hmm. on that. But Michael made his first, you know, mark as a writer-director in the TV movie starring Peter Strauss called Jericho Mile, which is about a, a guy who's in prison who, who gets a shot because of this the talent that he has to take part in the Olympics. And it's a prison, you know, it's a TV movie. 
so it's uh, it it doesn't ha it's pretty it's really well made i mean it reminds me of like spielberg's first tv movie duel which is very cinematic um mm -hmm. man is a really cinematic visual storyteller and he really gets the most out of the l very limited time and limited budget that he has in jericho mile but it's not a special visual treat like a couple of his films coming up like just his very next film for example um yeah. But it is that story, that story, it's just sort of a story of redemption and atonement. And there's, it's just this very, it's a very manly tale, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, that's going to come up time and time again. And I don't mean it as a cheesy pun every time, but it really, really does just a, he's a very masculine storyteller. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean the women in his stories get short shift because they typically don't. In fact, in fact, we'll, we'll evaluate this as we go. There aren't many at all in Jericho Mile. It's a men's prison film, as you can imagine. It, yep. Th there's not much feminine touch in it. And, and in that way, it's perfect, a perfect start for him. And it got a lot of attention. A lot of people saw it and were like, wow, this guy knows what he's doing. You know, he's, he's, he's special. So mm -hmm. that gave him the chance to break into theatrical features. Um, and we'll get to the one that he that he had mighty success with at first, although it was a modest film and a modest success financially. It was still a success. It gave him the chance to take a few chances on on his second theatrical feature, which we've talked about on the show before, which is the weird World War Two horror fairy tale, um, The Keep, which is this crazy story about these. <laughs> Wormerack soldiers who show up in the middle of the Carpathian Mountains and unleash some sort of hellish demon onto the earth. Uh -huh. And everyone involved sort of has to figure out what they're going to do about that. <laughs> um, it's a really good gothic horror novel by F. Paul Wilson. And he wrote, and you can tell, because the parts of his film that are intact you can tell there there's something special going on in terms of filmmaking, but it's very weird. It's very postmodern, very music video-ish. We talked about it. And for every moment of visual brilliance that it has, it has a moment of intense uh, dramatic corniness that undoes and unravels everything as it goes. And the whole movie is this battle between these two things mm -hmm. with half of it on the cutting room floor, never to be seen again. So we'll never really know what it was supposed to be that yeah. sent him because that was a huge disaster, fairly, fairly expensive film that nobody understood. Hardly anyone saw and all the, and it's the kind of thing executives look at and just say, you know, we're never, we're not going to have this guy work on any. I mean, this is yeah. obtuse. It's weird. It's, it's off putting. It's confusing. It's all that stuff that execs don't like, you know, if he'd have just made a dumb comedy that wasn't very funny, Okay, man, you know, uh, mm -hmm. what's what's next? But the key killed his rep in Hollywood and sent him running back to television where he created one of the more iconic television shows of our lifetime. We'll right. get to that later, too. So, yeah, which we'll get to that. Um, how do you like yeah, that, Joel? I cut to, to the chase. Yeah, we got we we um we talked about the keep in our uh horror what was moments. It? It was like yeah, horror moments episode. I, I couldn't remember I was like scenes that affected us, but I know it had a better title than that <laughs> or, or because they were all horror horror moments yeah. um that was the first show michael came on to do was that the first one 
I think oh, so. Oh, wow. That was, yep. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, that was... Uh, God bless uh, COVID, yeah, I, you know, where we... <laughs> yeah, and um, uh, the keep, yeah, the keep is, it, yeah, you can see that that would sort of be... Um, I, I like the way you put it. It's the kind that an executive will go, uh, no matter no matter what else he might do, an executive could always go, yeah, but the keep. <laughs> well, it hasn't and, been an anchor around his neck like that, thankfully, yeah. in his career. Well, yeah. Because luckily, the next thing he did really was a super smash mega hit. But yeah. but it, it's the kind of thing where he had to make a change from a career standpoint. He had to do something different because it does mm-hmm. literally include everything that mod- the modern movie executive find objectionable <laughs> and mm-hmm. and you know there wasn't going to be a lot of support or enthusiasm left for him after that yeah and 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 you know the the tv project which we'll get to in a in a, just a couple moments although you probably can guess what it is uh it is um i mean maybe, or maybe it did, it'll be a big surprise for you maybe you don't yeah. know michael man you never know. i mean it did signal i mean it, it there, there is, uh, there is Michael. Michael Mann does have a, a wheelhouse. It seems that he does feel the most comfortable in, no in terms of a genre and a type of story that he he tells. Um, you get a lot of, you get a lot of, uh, uh, how to how to put this? Because it's not all law enforcement. It's all, it, it's a lot of it's, people. It, it, more, more than law enforcement. It's typically from the it, criminal's point of view. It's yeah. a lot of lot of crime dramas and a lot of crime, lot, but crime for people, but people who have a code, um, and I think that's uh, you know that 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 plays into um, a lot of Michael Mann's films. No doubt. Um, let's jump. Let's jump to number ten. Um, since we mentioned Jericho, Mile, and the Keep, and I real will, uh, I do want to, you know, we're we're going to talk about one of the things is even after you know the Keep sent him kind of running back to as you you know you said well he kind of had to go back to television had to do um, something even had to shake yeah, things up yeah even after you know even after uh, he started making big hits again and 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 hits in theaters again mm-hmm. um, he never shied away from television he kept you know it, it's he's a he's the guy, kind of guy who. Um, pretty equally comfortable in both uh, both mediums. He was a very um, important voice in television in the '80s, in particular. I think in the, yeah. the '90s and, and forward, he, his dabble dabbling in television has been more as an advisor and an executive yeah. rather than as the main creative force. But um, he he took to serialized storytelling, which he enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Same with David Lynch, who's the kind of the least television guy you would think. He liked that idea of, wow, you get to spend all these time with these people and you really get to take rather than take them from the first act to the second act, whatever this sort of regimented idea, which even mm-hmm. as weird as Lynch's films are, they still basically follow that structure. You get to take them during their lives, this huge part of their lives. And you get to really examine a character that way. And that while that's stressful, having to write all that and be responsible for all that churning out so quickly, it's, it is addictive to certain filmmakers. And he really did like that part of it. Yeah. And his next show after his big hit show, which wasn't a big hit was extremely serialized, like a novel, which was very fun. So, you know, yeah, like you say, there's a, and like I said, there's a common thread, both thematically and artistically, that go through these. And yet, they each have their—they're each a variation on a theme. They're each very deliberately kind of their own thing and have their own reason for existing, which is very cool. Mm-hmm. So number ten is the movie Black Hat, 
with uh with thor with chris hemsworth starting uh, at the end basically because yeah. this is the last movie that he put out so so here we're talking about his life and his origins and now we're skipping mm -hmm. to his most recent movie from just a few years ago black hat which is a techno thriller about a imprisoned hacker who gets let out by some law enforcement types to help investigate and track down somebody who's about to make a very big move that's gonna that that's a big financial thing but it's also a sort of terrorist thing it's gonna mm -hmm. send the you know the world markets into chaos and stuff so um chris hemsworth plays this i don't know if you've ever met i don't know if you guys have ever met a hacker in real life but not uh, chris hemsworth y'all yeah they very rarely do they turn out to look uh <laughs> very rarely do they very rarely do they take breaks from hacking on their computers to if, do like ten thousand crunches if we could to take make a, sure you get that if we could take a little ad. fly on the wall look into their prison cell they they aren't the ones doing the one-handed backwards pull-ups you know on the bars of the door and stuff they're not chris hemsworth that said yeah. Uh, Hemsworth's great. He's actually fills the role fantastically of the of the Michael Mann hero type because he doesn't say much. He's a man of few words and great action, and he has Chris portrays uh, for as beefcakey as he is. He portrays a lot of intelligent. There's a lot of intelligence and a lot of thought going on behind his eyes, which he uses really, really well in this film. In fact, without that. All this, everybody looking at each other, storytelling stuff wouldn't work. So it's a, mm -hmm. it's Chris gets ripped on for not being able to carry a movie unless it's a Thor movie. But to be fair to him, his race car movie is outstanding. This film is is pretty good. Uh, again, a little off putting because you really aren't let into it emotionally. That's if there's a downside to any of these pieces, it, that's it time and time and again. When he manages to pull that off, and it always feels like at the last moment he kind of sneaks in the emotional satisfaction when he does, you know, he just you get it even though you weren't expecting it. Um, when he pulls that off, they, his, he makes some perfect films, some really really outstanding stuff. When he doesn't pull it off, you end up you end up in the top ten, but you end up at ten basically, which is what this story is. It's got some breathtaking visual set pieces in it it's this huge travelogue you go to some really exotic places it's a mm -hmm. big it's got a you know uh michael has shot some of the more amazing car chases and shootouts in particular in film history and the shootout in black hat it's not disappointing uh lots of surprises and plot twists you know it's not a bad movie it's just it's just not a it's not a great one. It's it's it feels very out of step and it, and it kind of shows that because there was a pretty big break between his last movie and that one. And now there's been a even bigger one since that one till now to present mm -hmm. where he doesn't have a movie. So he, he it does show that he's a little out of step with modern storytelling because there's not so much as a couple witty sayings, but there's no. There's just nothing to help you through the way movies and TV yeah. shows these days are designed to, to you know, it almost like they can get away with more because they're being so audience friendly to you. And this isn't an audience friendly movie. It, it, it requires you do a lot of the work on your own. And that's not the yeah. style these days. They're all like that. I, honestly, 
we'll get some more of them live. Uh, apparently, Black Hat um, he recut it um, and put out. A, there was there's a there was a recut version of it. Yeah. Uh, Shown only was, in theaters, though you can't get that recut version. Well, one no, there was one time, and then uh, what? Like it was the only. Let's see, it was only at the, a film, the Brooklyn Academy of Music. It only played once as part of a retrospect, and then um, FX had it exclusively on Direct TV. Oh, so well, you had that's... to not only be an, uh, you, you not only have FX as part of your package. Mm-hmm. It could only be on the Direct TV version of it. Yeah, and um, that's great. And, that's and a good it... way to make sure that everybody will see that. Good job. <laughs> yes, yeah, that is. Uh, uh, yeah, of all the movies I, to to it, go. The like, cu- I'll just Uber tell you, I've I've read a lot about that because I ha- wasn't able to see it, and I was curious to what he changed. Yeah. So I've seen an interview with him explaining why, and it sounds like a good idea. Like he he put a lot of plot up front so that you were explained a little bit better what was happening and less was revealed to you. So it made you, the audience member have to be less patient. And I don't love that in theory, but I, it may make for a stronger film because the film really does slowly reveal everything to you, character, plot, Mm -hmm. all of it. Um, but the cut is not the problem with that movie. That movie's uh, emotionally standoffish in Mm -hmm. just intensely emotionally standoffish. And, as I say, that's just not the style these days. We, we'd um, rather have piles of superficial emotion than than no semblance of it, you know. Right. And, and it's not that it's right. not an emotional film. He has emotional reactions, but the reactions are always the reactions are inquisitiveness and and rage and revenge. They're not the they're not the connections between people that we find important in in our films, you know. The, the person that he's that he's connected to the most, they barely say anything to each other. It's just mm-hmm. hard for people to take. I, and I sympathize, but it was pretty, it was, it can't be dismissed. It was a good film. It was really well made, but yeah. Uh, our number nine film is uh, we go to the world of sports biopics. Um, and it is uh, Michael Mann's uh, Ali, the telling of the Muhammad Ali story. Yeah, Muhammad and, Ali is played by a Will Smith. One yep. of Will Smith's better performances. Of course, it's a it's a Muhammad Ali impression that he's doing. But, you know, Will's a big-time movie star, so he has that. A, he's got the three things you need. He's got this. He's got his own movie star charisma where he gets to make this iconic guy his own because Will Smith doesn't look like Muhammad Ali. He kind of sounds <laughs> like him, but it, you have to – it's like – Anthony Hopkins playing Nixon, you know, it's, it's a great performance, but you have to get over the fact that they're, that just in the still photographs, it doesn't fit or work really at all. Right. Um, right. but, but that's the number one thing Will has. He's got a, He's his own thing. He's his own star. He does. He's not going to be compromised by the fact that he's not exactly like Muhammad Ali. He's going to step up big time, which he does. He's pretty, pretty great in it. He's in almost every scene. Um, of this three hour, you know, biography of this very flamboyant guy. Um, second, you have Muhammad Ali, you have a biography truly worth telling. It's really, really an interesting story. And I think, you know, I, I, I don't read a lot of biography. I, so I get my, 
I get my characters of history from the movies to some degree, which is a dangerous thing because the movies, Mm -hmm. as we've shown time and again, let themselves off the hook from telling you the real history. Honestly, if there's a, if there's a great scene to be had, a good sequence or a, or a nice happy ending, they will eschew history every time to achieve that stuff. Um, but this man feels, and I can only say how it feels, but it, this story feels like it has a lot of integrity because again, it's nine on the list, uh, a movie that was easier, more crowd pleasing, that took the easy way out with the character, really feels like it would have been a more fun, more better received film than this one. It really does yeah. feel like he tried really hard, almost to a fault, to stick to the important sort of biographical beats. And the only blanks he's really filling in are the sort of relationship ones. And even those feel like they're kind of well thought out and and researched. Yeah. It's a boxing movie. It's got killer boxing scenes. Our buddy Brian yeah. Bevel, who was on our uh, crime movies of 1990 episode, uh, he has a great theory, which is if you want to know if a director is really great or not, that w- see if they've ever directed a boxing scene. And if they have, is it good? And if it's good, then they're a great director. <laughs> like a boxing wow. scene is literally mm-hmm. a, the, a litmus test for whether you're a decent visual storyteller or not. There aren't enough boxing scenes in history to prove that one way or another. But I will tell you this, the boxing scenes in Ali are fantastic. And yeah. they have they have to be. They have to put you there in the ring with them and really give you that experience. Um, well, so yeah, I dig it. So it has a the... longer director's cut, which is a better movie because Michael, pretty much every time he does a longer version of his films, they're better. Um, every later cut, there's one movie that's a big exception to this that we already mentioned in our alternate cuts episode, but we'll mention mm-hmm. it again, uh, much later on this list, but mostly when he, he doesn't with, like I say, only the one exception in my experience, he does not revisit his projects and not improve them. He, it, it doesn't start with an invitation to redo the movie. It, it starts with him coming up with, oh, I should have done this. This should be like this. This would help a lot. And then he sort of it impulsively fixes it. Mm-hmm. And the long version of Ali is the better one, just in case you're curious. Because yeah. you may have a choice. Um, I mean, um, long biopic, the more bio, the better. You feel like you've lived more of his life with him. So right. even if it's even if it's more of what you don't like about the movie, which is that it's a little staid, it's a little boring – Again, a little not terribly emotionally involving. Um, well, that's that's the big. I think that would be the big criticism. You know, you have someone with that, that is just this huge personality and this iconic uh, person in in the history of sports and in the history of especially a black culture. For sure. Um, uh, and he, uh, you know, you, you you mentioned it. It feels more like Will Smith is doing an impression of Ali. Uh, where it's like you you get little you get a a, a sort of sense of uh, of technical accuracy, but um, you know one of the things that you you know that when you know, like with like you mentioned uh, with Nixon and Anthony Hopkins um, and maybe <laughs> what's well, my favorite one because as... it's like Nixon Anthony Hopkins is not Nixon and yet it's really yeah. hard to watch that and go he didn't nail yeah, something because... of it. 
because they lock in on they 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 fo- they get to the essence of the person right. instead of just doing the mannerisms and that's uh, i think that might be you know no knock against will smith will smith is a great actor but i i sort of felt like i still never really um like got muhammad ali yeah uh, you know, I, Will, I did not feel the emotional investment uh, that that you know that for yeah. for, for this guy who was, incre- you know, so incredibly outspoken uh, of on not you know on social issues and then also this this just larger than life character in the sporting world where to you know that that people would be like like literally he would be a he would be a joke he'd be a laughing stock if he wasn't such an amazing boxer to be able to back it up. Yeah. Will Will gets to the essence of the character in terms of his, what his public persona was. And sure. you know, and that's that's what a movie star brings to the thing. As far as who the private man was, he, he, the movie yeah. just doesn't have much of an answer for that. And there are a lot of biopics that are like that, you know, Man on the Moon's like that. Um you could just it's just a massive list of them where really what we got is what was in front of the cameras and that's the part that the movie the movie nails that that's enough mm-hmm. but it's not mm-hmm. it's not everything that you would want you know the yeah. same way selma feels like a it feels like a history lesson in a way because you just you feel like the real people involved are impenetrable even but yeah. then when it comes time to reenact that event it still sort of takes your breath away so this movie's still struggling with that balance but the sure. the loudmouth public guy out in front of the cameras the the fun humor of him behind the scenes all that will masters but yeah it's like it's not even the actor's fault in this case the movie just doesn't it doesn't concern him concern itself enough with who he really was i think because it can't and i think it doesn't i think it's afraid to just make that stuff up if that makes any sense but it's um it's nine on the list yeah, because it doesn't give you an answer for that. It's a pretty long movie to sit through and feel like you really only saw the highlights of Muhammad Ali's career reenacted. This was mm-hmm. a guy who at the time the movie came out was still around or had just recently passed. But even even sports people, even biographers interviewing him and stuff, they never got much out of him. So it's it's partly him that is, you know, public persona really is the thing that we're left with. Yeah. And that's probably uh, all we're, we're right to anyway. So who knows? Sure. Sure. Um, okay. So the, um, but you're not wrong. Next... You nailed what the, you know, what's missing. Perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the next up, next up is, uh, well, this is the, um, the, the project. Well, this is how, how did, how to describe what we're going to do with the next one here. I mean, we're going to talk about the <laughs> well, movie this is version the top of 10 movies, movies of Michael, of Michael Mann. Mann. So, so that's what we're talking about on the episode. We're going to mention some of these other projects. This next one of which is monumental in his career. Yeah. And we're just not going to talk about it much. We're just going to kind of give you the biographical beats of it and move on to the movie. That's going to seem a little weird, but maybe someday. We're going to get to the movie version of Miami Vice uh, in in a moment, but you can't talk about the movie version of Miami Vice without talking about the television show Miami Vice. Uh, Absolute iconic uh, television show of the 80s. Maybe maybe the most iconic uh, in terms of it's in a lot of ways. I think I think it is. It came along in what, 84? 
Uh, I just was looking at it here, and um, oh come on, where can I? Where can so I it give me my dang dates. It came Where's al- my dates. <laughs> it came along at the zenith of the Technicolor sort of eighties. Yeah, eighty four, eighty four to ninety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, um, it was the show that taught us all to push up our suit sleeves, and um. And, and that it was okay to wear a, a t-shirt underneath our sport coat. Um, but yeah, no, th- so this was, you know, this is after, you know, after the keep, um, uh, Michael Mann ha- was looking for work and yep. a guy from, uh, Hill, wasn't it Hill Street Blues? What was that dude's yep. name? Um, I can't remember his name. Frank. Yeah, he had a, yeah, he had a script. He had an idea of essentially Hill Street Blues, but let's take it to sunny Miami. <laughs> right. And uh, and have... it's not Hill Street Blues because it's not an ensemble show. It's about these two. Sure. Okay. Yeah. It's that's about these two vice cops and the crimes are not s- street crimes and city crimes. They're big time sort of drug and smuggling and contraband type crimes, you know, which mm-hmm. are an uglier much more serious kind of thing involving yep. a much uglier and, and more frightening villain. Yeah. Uh, from episode yeah. and, to episode. So, and, and again, something, you know, the whole, the whole idea of, of drug culture uh, and especially things like uh, cocaine and heroin and stuff. That was, that was the, especially cocaine. That was the eighties. Well, uh, and man's, uh, and it can't before we move on from Miami Vice because it really is its own show. If you're mm-hmm. a uh, movie show with Joel and Ryan fan out there, you have a lot to say about Miami Vice, the TV show. You know, step up, send us a message, and we'll do a whole show about it with you. We can't do that here. But mm-hmm. uh, just the last thing I'll say about Miami Vice: the the his em- embrace of the mid '80s style music video and how he got oh. that into every show. Just the slick whateverness of it and miami vice is very much a michael mann project in that it's very again it's a very masculine from the alpha male point of view um that that's where the thing comes from big time and it has and it's and it's so it's 10 times cooler than anything that was on tv at the time and yet Mm -hmm. it's it's twice as cheesy as anything he would ever commit to film sure and those two things are they're in that magical crowd pleasing spot that we never rarely ever see from him in his cinema yeah. work. They just fit in they just go together perfectly and wonderfully and 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 people tuned in every week for that for a while. That show people got tired of it pretty quickly like they do of shows that are yep. high concept and high style like that. It it, it limped along to 1990, but it was really those first couple years 84 to 86 where you know, it was the number one thing on TV and it, and everybody just loved it. Yep. And it, for good reason, it was super slick and entertaining, really satisfying television to watch and easy to get wrapped up in. Yep. And um, also important to, I, I feel important to mention uh, about the TV show before we move on uh, the awesome music by Jan Hammer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and his, well, his theme uh, song and, and, his, and, his and song, a handful yeah. of other things that he wrote for the show are, Really good. Yep. We mentioned Jan Hammer um, and the Miami Vice music in the electronic themes, even though indeed. that was about movies too. We just couldn't help but bring it up because Hammer is a he's a staple of that style of music, and 
you know, he's that weird guy. He lives in a weird Hollywood home with lots of palm trees and evergreens and stuff. But you go in there and he's this strange, like, European-looking dude who's just got wall-to-wall synthesizers and <laughs> he programs them to make sounds like no one else can. And that's that's the gloriousness of electronic music, like, it just in a nutshell. So he, it's that stuff is fantastic. And he integrated, sure. you know, all the... Brazilian rhythms and all that sort of uh, Caribbean yeah. sounding stuff into it and smart music. So years, so years after the, the, you know, creating this uh, uh, iconic television show, um, you know, so I guess 16 years after the show goes off the air. Well, uh, let, before you say the name of it, which we know what it is, cause we just said it, Yeah. but he needed, a, he needed another hit. He needed another big hit. And people wanted him to make uh, another movie like what your best movies were, you know. And he yeah. not again. I said it. He, he makes the same movie over and over again. I really believe that's true. But he needs some sort of other way into it to inspire him to create that story again. And mm-hmm. this is the movie on the list where it didn't have that. What he did was he just took this kernel of an idea from his most successful project and then tried to tell a very serious cinematic retelling of it. Um, the Miami vice, the movie, but it really does feel like a, like a holding pattern of a project. You know what I mean? It feels like it's a good movie. It's better than Ali and it's better than black hat. And they're, those are both good too. So there's a lot to like about it. But what it absolutely doesn't have is what I told you the magic ingredient of Miami Vice the show was, which is just fun. This film isn't fun at all. It's like right. it's movies. Well, yeah, and you and you think of you think of uh, television products that were uh, projects that were made into movies yeah. in the '90s and 2000s. Mm-hmm. They all, almost all of them, do it with a wink and a smile, right. and a, you know, even no matter, winkier no matter than what the, the original thing is. was. Yeah. Uh, right. This doesn't. This takes the and premise not, and it and it tells it in a up straight crime drama with the emphasis on drama um way. And it's it's very rewarding if you can accept it as that. I found it a little off putting the first time I saw it, but I've seen it a couple of times since. And it gets better every time. That's a sign of a pretty good story and a pretty good movie. Really, really well acted by Jamie Foxx and Colin Farrell. Yep. And who's the woman in it? She's fantastic. Uh, Naomi Harris. Yeah, she's good, but it's the other one, the one who's actually oh. wrapped up in the crime drop problems. Oh, uh, 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 Elizabeth Rodriguez, or are you talking about Gong Lee? Gong Lee. Yeah. Now, Gong Lee's pretty much the best Hong Kong actor ever, male mm-hmm. or female, you know. We usually yeah. say actor. We don't say actress a lot on the show, although that's nothing wrong with that. But well, uh, Gong Lee is... Gong Lee's just top-notch. If you need somebody to show up, or she's the ultimate, honestly, um, or the ultimate refinement, I guess, because she's certainly not the best female character we come across on this list, but she's the total ultimate refinement of a Michael Mann, mysterious, going to make you change your whole life and make you take every risk you never dreamed of type of lady. And it, and she just does it by doing so very little. And I know that maybe doesn't sound interesting, but I just got to tell you, Gong Lee's just special. She's just a really, really special actor. Yeah. You cannot go wrong 
uh, even in her dumbest movies, you know, Hannibal Rising, and you know, there's a list of them. She's not in only good things. But every time you pick up a film that she's in, you're going to get the benefit of a fantastic female character played by pretty much the best in the business. And if, she, you know, if she were... Well, in a way, if she were American, she couldn't exist. So we're grateful to have her as she is, I guess. Well, because sure. she wouldn't be that person. You know, there right. is this Chinese kind of reserved thing about her that is awesome. So uh, Miami Vice has a, has all the things you want. It's got a boat chase. It's got a. It's got one of the ballsiest craziest shootouts i've ever seen in a movie it's got this incredible intense siege sequence on this drug house um there's some humor in it you know jamie fox is in it after all he can't help but be his kind of chilled charming self but even that is you know it's a serious film about a serious sort of vice you know drug cartel and that stuff is not pleasant stuff um, but if you thought, well, it's not Miami Vice or it's not my Miami Vice or hashtag right. not not my whatever the name of the lead character of Miami Vice is, whose name is slipping me, Crockett. Crockett and Tubbs. Yep, <laughs> you know, it, I, okay, I, I sympathize, but it, uh, taken on its own, it's quite good. Yeah. And it also yeah. has a recut, re-edited version that's better. But that's... I think for Miami Vice, the film, that's the only version really you're going to stumble across. I think it's actually hard to go back and find the, because that's the version that hit home video and you know what I mean? Sure. So. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Next up is uh, the 2004 Tom Cruise, Jamie Foxx in Collateral. This is one of his most beloved films. It's a little low yeah, on my list film. because I think that the, the Tom Cruise, yappity yap yap, sort of bad guy, is not in keeping with what man's strengths are. Even though it's a really fun role for Cruise, he doesn't there. Are, he doesn't play many stone cold assassins in his career. He really is the bad guy in this. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that. Um, he he basically is in town with a few people to kill, and he takes this cab driver hostage. <laughs> And takes him on his mission with him, and Fox plays the cab driver, and it's this sort of impossible situation for him. He's unmatched by this super assassin guy. Um, I think in this scenario, I think part of the reason people love it is because Cruise, Cruise's monologues and stuff, his this crazy, egotistical, psychotic guy that he plays is super entertaining, but it it does the whole movie does feel at least to me like a bit of a put on i have it at this spot like i have it above what i think are the lesser movies because it's it's a fantastic movie i believe it's his biggest hit movie i think that michael mann tom cruise like connection like is the thing that made it a huge huge hit and mm -hmm, allowed him mm -hmm. to make then his next few films which were he kind of made them however he wanted which was the, his reward for making a big hit for Paramount, Paramount even asked him if he wanted to recut the keep during the when this had premiered because it was the only other property that they owned of his. And he said no. He said no. 
not not interested in in, in, in fact he said if you really want to do me a favor just bury that piece of crap yeah and this is <laughs> I, I don't i wasn't i wasn't in that meeting so i don't know the exact words that were used but it's right. a it's a for keep fans it's sort of this thing that <laughs> the keep was about to be released on dvd and and after collateral came out uh suddenly it wasn't and all this stuff that we'd been hearing about them trying to sort of put it back together again just all went away, and and it just makes us all very sad. But whatever. Yep. So I also blame Collateral for that. So maybe I have it a little lower than some folks would, <laughs> uh, just for that purpose alone. I don't know, <laughs> because it's oh. really fun. Again, really kind yeah. of amazing shootout in the middle of it. There's uh, the the, you know, you have to you have to like that sort of character. I I personally really with only a few exceptions, don't like a super chatty villain. I find the more they say, the less scary that they are. Mm -hmm. uh, but this film proves that if you do it right, it, it doesn't have to be that way because, because Cruz's character's turns, you know, his turns from the friendly jokey, whatever guy to the psycho killer guy are, are jarring and surprising and yep. effective. So it, it works in this movie, but it, that's still what it is. It's a couple of really super chit chatty dudes <laughs> on yeah. uh, on this really awful, awful bender together, basically in the in the nighttime. And is it's L.A. right? It must be. It's very yeah. L.A. He's only, yeah, he's only in L.A. for a day. Only a day. Oh right. Yeah. Oh, that's what he, the what he tells him. Yeah. It's only. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just remember that he tell. Yeah, when he says. Um, uh, <laughs> it, the catchphrase was the tagline was. It started like any other night. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just remember him telling uh, Jamie Foxx, was like, I'm only in L.A. for a day and I need to make a couple stops. He's only in L.A. for a day is a much better tagline, by the way. Paramount yeah. executives, just so you know. And it's right um, out of the movie. I, find, I, do, I do find it, well, interesting, I guess. Uh, but like all the people, you know, kind of all the people that they were looking at for the film, um before before it eventually you know came tom cruise and, and became Jamie a Fox. cruise wagner production yeah um but it was uh it, you know that um that that role the jamie fox role was always sort of uh like all the people that are you know a couple people listed here they they all come from um a, you know a comedy background so there was clearly an yeah. effort to try to make sure that that when when it's light when we're supposed to be having fun to really make sure that we get some people that know how to, you know, like Adam Sandler was uh, considered for that role. It was going to be Adam Sandler and Russell Crowe, which is uh, not bad with Mimi Le with Mimi leader directing. Not bad. Um, yep. That would have been interesting. Who wrote collateral? Um, huh? Who wrote it? Uh, it was Stuart Beatty. Ah. Um, he was uh... Michael Mann although he could have done his own pass at it, could not have written this script. It's very clear that it was done by somebody else because it, even though it has the feel of the, of a th the thing that he tends to make, these characters are just not, they didn't come from within him at all. And mm -hmm. that's, that's where the difference is. And it just shows you if Michael Mann had written it, it would always have been a Michael Mann film. It was right. Cruz and Paula Wagner that brought it to Mann. And that's where it all sort of came together. So it was, it, that's not typically how it is. And it makes the film a little different. And it made the film a big giant mega hit. Like whatever is missing uh, from that easygoing, 
like just what that easy entertainment that's missing from Michael's other works. It's in this movie, so that's that's why it was such a big hit. It 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 certainly didn't shy away from the violence or any of that stuff, but it it you know it it sure. got that got that that rhythm of a fun entertainment thing right which is pretty cool um okay next up is the movie from 2009 public enemies mm, what number uh, are we on what we are at number six six no. yep public enemies um and we're uh, also gonna you know so public enemies uh john uh like uh, the john dillinger um, you know, it's a Johnny Depp about... is John Dillinger. That's the yeah. best way to say what the movie is. Um, mm-hmm. and Dillinger's a really interesting character from history, from the gangster era, from the prohibition era. He's a fascinating one. And the guy, the fed that was on his case is uh, a fascinating guy too, played by Christian Bale. Um, mm-hmm. plus you have, uh, Billy Crudup playing J. Edgar Hoover and Stephen Graham as, uh, I want to say Babyface Nelson. Yep. Um, Stephen Graham, damn. Stephen Graham is this British guy who's always playing these American gangsters because he just, he, 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 looks... he really does have that, that young De Niro sort of mm-hmm. just, just, you know, he's, he's stunning, uh, without spoiling it. This is a spoiler, I guess, but it, Babyface Nelson's death scene in Public Enemies is one of the craziest, most horrific, and yet beautiful things in all the movies. <laughs> I don't know quite how to explain it. It's yeah. just just gloriously choreographed, almost romantic thing that is also horrifically violent and feels very believable. It's so you, that's where Michael Mann lives, you know, where those two things come together. And that happens several times in this. Um, Marion Cotillard plays, uh, the love of Dillinger's life. Mm-hmm. Billy Frechette. Again, just really outstanding, a really outstanding actor in a very interesting role. Um, we talk a lot. I, I've never, I, I don't think there'll ever be a, a Michael Mann movie that has like a, a, a heroine or a woman at the center of it. But these, these ladies, and they're almost, they're almost corny. They're almost, they're the opposite of corny in that they're not there to serve this sort of cheap Hollywood purpose. But at the same time, they're these, they tend to be like Gong Lee, this woman, they're a couple coming up. They tend to be these perfect, worshipful, beautiful, articulate, like they don't, they don't feel like real people. They feel like these female ideals. And that's mm-hmm. a trap. It's not the worst trap you can fall into as a male writer, but it's still a trap that we have to acknowledge. You're not yep. really, you know, you're writing them to the point that they're almost not a person. They're this, there is some statuesque thing. Um, it takes a really good actor to show up on set like Cotier, like Lee. These are as good as there are to bring some sort of soul and vulnerability and actual personhood to these saints and, you know, people that he creates. Yeah. And they, she, Marianne does it as, as good as anyone ever has. She's really, really outstanding in the film. Um, and it's just got a, just a whole ton of really great character actors and stuff at every step of the story. Uh, it's weird. It's, it's, it, it was a little off-putting to me at first, although I've adjusted because so many more things have been made this way since. But it was—it's this old period prohibition gangster film that shot 
on d super digital style cameras. And mm -hmm. that was, that was tough for me to take that, what I've called in the past, that sort of surveillance camera video style mixed with, yeah. mixed with a period drama, which you expect to be fuzzier and gauzier, you know, something yeah. softer somehow visually. It's just this very sharp video-y looking yeah. thing. We kind of, yeah, but this it's, and there's an element to, we're going to look back in time. Yeah. Uh, that a, you know that that a director can do with the visuals. Yeah. And, right, and I assure you, he didn't choose that way of doing it. He could have done the movie any way he wanted. He chose yeah. that for a reason. But it it for I think for your average moviegoer, I don't think you'll care. But for for movie buffs like us, when we were watching it, we were like, that's weird that he did it like that. Mm. But it's great, and it's it's it reminds me. There's a similarly great movie. It's even more low key, but with Brad Pitt called the assassination of Jesse James by the coward, Robert Ford. Mm -hmm. And that movie's about the celebrity of being an outlaw. And Dillager is, is very much about the celebrity of being an outlaw too. There's this yeah. fantastic scene where he wanders into a police station where they're working on his case. And he, he just walks along. He just walks by all the cops in the place and sees his, big board or whatever you would call it, this giant billboard with all the pictures yeah, and places he's been and the yarn yeah, and the links yeah. and everything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All this stuff. And he just kind of watches his whole crime career go by in front of him. And he's standing there doing it with these cops walking by. And of course today that's not, you couldn't have that. Uh, you, right. you, everyone would know who you were. There'd be thousands of pictures of you. You, in these these this sort of represents the last era of america where it's possible for you to be this crazy thing and have nobody recognize you on the street and yeah, where you where you can create this myth that that like that that permeates and that's that's why these gangsters were were like mythical uh you know figures is they right. you know the the crimes that they committed unless you lived in the city you read about them. They didn't really affect your life. And, right. and so you got, so they you know, became they, the they were... comic book characters of the time. And that's why mm -hmm. they all pretty boy Floyd, like the whole list of them. That's why they're all still remembered today and all yeah. remembered for their most superficial. They're all nicknamed for their most superficial categories. <laughs> pretty yeah. boy Floyd is being seen hunted down by Christian Bale's character early in the film. And, and it's, he has this thing where he says, huh? why do people call me that? And it's cause he's this gorgeous teenage matinee idol looking dude. You know, like he's played by somebody pretty famous now too. And it, it was less uh, famous at the time it here. Um, pretty boy Floyd, pretty boy Floyd. Channing Tatum. There you go. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So you could, it's not a Channing Tatum movie. He's only in the movie for a couple minutes, but yeah, this but, is early, yeah, early Tatum, but it's great. It's a great moment for Channing. He really nails it. Because it is about that. There's something behind Tatum's eyes when he, when he's lying there in that field, breathing his last breath, where he doesn't get it. <laughs> he doesn't get his own mystique. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and if he ever did, he really doesn't now that he's been laid low. And it's it, that it's about that. It's about these guys and their personalities and what drives them. Uh, Gillinger, and that's why he's the perfect old school gangster for man is because he, as Joel pointed out, he really had a code very much had a way of operating that was, you know, 
because he could shoot him up with anybody, but he didn't like shooting people. He didn't want to shoot hostages. He didn't hang out yep. with psychos. And if he ended up with one, he didn't tolerate them for very long because he just knew that that how whatever however folk hero he could be to the public that had its own value when he showed up at a certain bank. Mm-hmm. Um, but partly, I think he just wasn't psychotic and didn't want to kill anybody. But there was more to it than that. He recognized the value in being a something of a gentleman highwayman of his time. Yeah, his uh, apprehension, his final moment in the movie. I mean, it, it every second of it has been preserved throughout history who all the players were where they were on the street it's one of those things where you you, it's one of those things where from that time the lines really aren't very blurry this stuff has all been told what where he sat in the movie theater what movie they were watching every single thing about that has been preserved in history and it's all recreated by man really brilliantly joel said uh because this is pretty much my list and not joel's joel said to me last night yeah, we'll just go with your list. Blah, blah, blah. But you know, the only one I would do differently is I I would certainly have public enemies higher. Yeah, I think and, that's and not by much. No, I, but I haven't seen I haven't seen our number five film. Right. Um, and I mean, and our number four film is fine. I like I like it. It's a great film. I just would put it a little higher. So I probably for, would for have me it's four. weird. A collateral early should be the leaping off point because that's where his movies get really rather unimpeachably good and stay that way until the end. But for me, the leaping off point is here. It's, 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 I was riveted by public enemies. Me and my dad went to see it and there was this obnoxious guy sitting in front of us on his phone the whole time. And we still were riveted by it. Just (laughs) really amazed by the whole thing. And, and I still feel that way when I see it. So it's a great role for Johnny Depp. You know, she played so many cartoon characters in the Tim Burton films and the pirate movies. And this right. guy is larger than life in a lot of ways, but he's a, he has to be a real person that appears on screen in front of us or, or the consequences for what happens to him and the people close to him wouldn't mean much to us. And he, yeah, this it's, is... it's one of the few modern roles where he really pulls that off. Very, yeah, very this well. is the, yeah, this is like you know the commitment with which he brought to Donnie Brasco mm. is is what he brings to Dillinger. Yep, um, and this that 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 very lived in, um, very yeah, just very embodies this 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 guy. Uh, yeah, now you also have mentioned here Crime Story, which is a show I'm not familiar with. Well, Crime uh, Story was. Um that was the other TV show that he did after, uh-huh. after Miami vice became a big hit around 87 or so, I want to say. Um, and wise yeah, guy yeah, was 80, on TV at 86, the time. Yeah. 86. 86 to 88. Yeah. So crime story's got two seasons. It's, it's like this. It's not connected really to, to public enemies, except that it's a, it's a vintage prohibition era crime story. Oh, um, okay. that's where it takes place. It stars Dennis Farina, and do you have it in front of you? Who's the other main yep. actor in it who's fantastic? Uh, Anthony Dennison. Anthony Dennison, who I wish was in every show. One of my absolute favorite actors of the 80s. And I just feel like he just kind of disappeared. And it sucks because he's spectacular. He's really, really good in, in uh, really, really good in Crime Story. He was really, really good in Wise Guy when he took over for Ken Wall for half a season after Crime Story wrapped. He's just outstanding leading man and 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 of course farina is what he is dennis farina we'll talk about him i think either in our next movie or the one after that um 
you know, Dennis Farina, his career started at being a, a law enforcement consultant for Michael Mann on a film. Oh, sure. That, that Michael Mann discovered him, if you will. Uh, and, and started putting him in his movies. And as he appeared in his movies with slightly bigger and bigger roles, he showed himself to be a really spectacular actor and, and really got to prove that in a, a awesome career of acting before he passed on. And we're grateful for both of those guys for bringing Dennis to us. Cause he's, he's, he's kind of the perfect Michael Mann, you know, cop. It just, you know, cause that's what he was. To, to yeah. Michael, he was all cops. You know, he was the cop, alpha cop, basically. <laughs> and he yeah, was a, got, he was an armed robbery expert, specialist, Chicago police officer, and that's how he got right. into movies. Um, yeah, you gotta like that. You know, yeah. When I, I just uh, I you know I'm remembering it now. I'm you know especially when they uh, it mentions the uh, use of um, oh uh, runaway um, by. Um, what? Oh shoot! Where is that? Uh, I was just looking at it. Oh no! Nobody knows what oh, you're talking no. about. Even me. Uh, what's that? What are you talking? The about? opening theme, the use of the song "Runaway" um, from Del Shannon. Who? In what? In in Crime Story. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, that's and, a, and weird, I'm like, oh, I remember touch. that show now. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, that's like that. That was. That's like, oh yeah, I remember that. I, I I don't remember the show very well, but I you know I love the idea of. It is nice, you know. You get this. You have a mob boss. You have a you have a a, a cop, and they're for some reason they just want to destroy each other. Yeah. And um yeah and that's pretty much what they get to do. Yep, and it is. Every it's week, a really good see. show. It's it's yeah. if it had only lasted a half a season, we would lament it as as uh, one of those shows that was the best thing ever that just got canceled prematurely. But it lasted two and a half seasons, so it lasted just long enough to start not getting good anymore, which is kind of the perfect yeah. time for something to go away. Um, it's a good show, Crime Story. I if you, don't, if you catch it streaming someplace and you don't mind watching something in Academy ratio and standard definition, which takes a little getting used to after all these years of glorious HD that we've had on our TVs. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, It'll be. It's worth your time. It's a really, really good character show, and and has really, really well done period stuff in it. Cars and costumes and stuff. It's really awesome. Guns, if you're Pretty into cool. that, all kinds of cool um, guns. Okay, so tell me about now. This is saying it's his first, uh, his first feature film. Michael Mann's first feature film. Our number five film is 1981's Thief with James Caan. And I, I got. I don't know this. Uh, I mean, I, I can, I can see crazy, one of the reasons son. why you love it. How one can of the you not why you love it? It's got a score composed of by Tangerine Dream. Well, it's on our electronic film scores episode. Actually, yeah. we talk about how awesome this score is. It's, boy, it's really close. If it's not my favorite Tangerine Dream score, it's maybe my second favorite. It's mm-hmm. really, really, really outstanding. Um, Thief is this urban noir story about this cat burglar played by James Caan. And he has pretty much his best role. I don't know, Sonny Corleone, right? I mean, he's got a couple right. of really awesome ones, but in terms of a movie that he carries himself, it, it, I, I don't, I've never seen him better than he is in this movie. Uh, Tuesday Well. Misery. Played, he's really good in Misery, but yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And playing against type and misery, he sort of knocks your socks off, doesn't he? Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. But this, yeah, no, you're right though. He does play against type in, um, in misery. So that's, yeah, what's great the, about the, it because he just, yeah. it's, it's not a performance you expect from him. And it, and even though it has something of him in it, he brings something personal to it. It's a brave performance in that way. James is right. this ultimate sort of Hollywood gangster type guy. Tough. You know? Yeah. He's a tough, he is. Um, he's Jewish. Yeah. And, and and it's, yeah. Up until, it's up until misery. He, that's what he played. Yeah. So it's weird that he's, that he is what he is because he plays this, you know, but he is that this guy is the, again, it's a Michael Mann movie. This is the perfect Michael Mann protagonist, this cat burglar with a code, this guy with the, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, who's getting pushed and pulled in all directions, pushed and pulled by the cops, um, pushed and pulled by the uh, organized crime people, uh, pushed and pulled, even though he's encouraging it from this new woman that he's met, played by Tuesday Weld, and what I think is her best performance. Maybe she she grew into being a great crazy old lady too. So I don't want to knock <laughs> yeah. any of those awesome roles because they were neat. But this one, um, this one, in terms of a, being the glamorous, you know, lady of desire, it's a fantastic part for her. Um, they have these very mammoth sort of exchanges, you know. And we see this guy in a later film. It's really the exact same guy, the exact same character with a different name and in a later, even better movie. Um, but we see his that sort of life philosophy, hey, that, I, that I'm going to live large and live the way I want to as long as I can. But when it comes time for me to choose running and and it, it, and foolishly trying to hang on to what I have in vain, I'm running. I'm yeah. I'm clipping that wire at that moment and you I will not be able to stop and I will not spare anybody in my way when I do it. And yep. that this movie ends like that. Like as oh, you would okay. expect. He he bring he has the big speech about it so you can damn well bet you know. Um the the you know and it's just James Kahn with the welding goggles on and the sparks flying and the blue cool blue evening you know midnight dusk it's like it, it's just so stylish and slick it's so kind of perfect for man those visuals mixed with the gurgling synthesizers and stuff and even jim belushi's good in it robert prosky's outstanding in it and it's just really really good and the fun thing is is that there's this thief he met these two guys who really formed his career in a, a large way. The thief, whose name I can't remember, who plays a cop in the movie, and the cop, Dennis Farina, who plays a thief in the movie, or more of a bodyguard type guy than a thief, mm -hmm. really. But a bad guy, anyway, is the point. He enjoyed the juxtaposition of letting these two real-life cops and robbers who knew each other and were friends with each other, um, he enjoyed flipping them and letting them be the other thing in this Hollywood fantasy land. And the film has that sense of fun to it, even though it's a serious film, it has that sense of, of, uh, it's hard to explain, but it has that sense of yeah. playfulness to it. Um, it's fantastic. It's one of those more people I think saw it on HBO than saw it in the theaters, but it's really, really well regarded film. Joel, you should absolutely see it and everybody okay. yeah. should see it. That's it's great. really, really good. It's it's a little old, but it captures that 1981 Chicago in a sort of glorious way, too, you know. 
The guy mm-hmm. owns a bar. He owns a. He kind of launders his money through his own businesses. Owns a used car lot where he drives a different Cadillac every other week, and you know he. It, yeah. It's hard to explain. He doesn't call a lot of attention to himself, and yet he likes the good things in life, which is why he's a thief. Because that's the easiest way to get rich, you know. Yeah. It it's interesting. It's a really good movie. It's again, it's it's a character movie. It's also the film debut of uh, not just Dennis Freeman, but William L. Peterson and a handful of other actors. First yeah. film was Thief, which is kind of neat. Chicago actors. Yeah, William Peterson. Um, hey, Willie Nelson's in there. We didn't mention Willie Nelson. Gotta Willie Nelson's him. great in it. What a cool role for him. Willie Nelson looks a lot like the guy, the thief in question, the thief oh. consultant, which I think is why he was cast. Um, John Voight plays the same guy in a later film. Yep. Um, so the, uh, next movie has, uh, our number four movie has like the, uh, for a long time, it was like the greatest little trivia, uh, (laughs) answer for movie nerds, um, who loved silence of the lambs and anybody who loves silence of the lambs movie nerds got to trot out this movie, which is a great movie. Um, and it is number four is, uh, is Michael Mann's Manhunter. Manhunter based, based on, on Thomas Harris's Red Dragon. Yep. It was going to be called Red Dragon, but Year of the Dragon and some other dragon thing had just come out and hadn't done very well. So they their, their metrics told them that dragons don't do well. <laughs> dragons in the title. Even though there's no dragon in Red Dragon, yep. really. A, a metaphorical dragon, I guess. Um yep they changed the name to Manhunter, which is not a bad name for it, to be honest. Um, Thomas Harris's Red Dragon's really great. It's not, this film was obscure in 91 when Silence of the Lambs came out. It isn't anymore. It's been adapted now a couple of times. Um, This one's really well regarded. Uh, It's really high on this list because this was the film that, this was his step back into cinema after Miami Vice was a massive hit. Mm. You know, Thief was the movie he made that put him on the map and allowed him to make The Keep. And then The Keep's the movie that sent him crawling back to TV. When he was allowed to make another film, because Miami Vice was such a hit and he was back in vogue again as a storyteller, he made Manhunter and it was produced by Dino De Laurentiis. And it's great. It's hard to imagine Thomas Harris's novel being adapted much better. Uh, It's got a really uh, pretty great performance by William Peterson um in not his debut performance but one of his early performances you know uh he's mm-hmm. quite quite good in it again Dennis Farina's in it um and Brian Cox plays Hannibal Lecter in it pretty effectively i have to say but it's a weird story that you know in every way that Silence of the Lambs is grungy and has this dark dirty brick you know sort of uh old-fashioned old world looking feel to it um manhunter is this ultra slick white walled mid 80s chic you know strip lighting like it's everything about 85 that was slick and you know whatever it 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 really feels like a weird 1985 time capsule because of that same same way miami vice does but even more so because the fashions the music everything is so exaggerated so exaggeratedly 1985 86 Mm -hmm. 
Um, but it's a really good story if you're into serial killer stories, or if you've only seen the the I, we won't call it a remake, but the the second film, Red Dragon, that that uh, Brett Ratner made. You owe it to yourself, I think, to see the Michael Mann movie. It's different, but it's very, very cool. Yeah. Really involving um, the big finale with Inagata DeVita blaring out of the speakers and stuff. And it's, you know, it's it's more style than substance for sure. But there's enough substance there to justify all the style that it throws at you. And that's what's so cool about it. Tom Noonan, Joan, our favorite ever's name. Yeah, Joan Allen. Joan Allen in a very early performance. Uh, again, another Chicago actor. That's not a, that's not an accident. Mecklemann is a big time Chicago guy. Uh, it's it's good. Manhunter's really really good. And if you haven't seen it in a while, it's worth checking out again. And if you've never seen it because you feel like you know the story, because Hannibal tells the story again, the TV show and and Red Dragon tells the story again. I get it. it's the same story hasn't yeah. changed, but it's still really worth seeing. I think. Uh, Thomas Harris's novels is really, really good too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Red Dragon and and following Silence of Lambs, those are as good of crime novels or hunt the killer novels as there are. It's easy to say that since they're big hits or whatever, but it 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 it's okay to say it because it's true. Yeah. It mm-hmm. you know it just, our our sense of familiarity with it or our sense of the cliched sort of Hannibal character going a bit off the rails doesn't change the fact that those are really, really good stories and they were turned into really good films by really good filmmakers. So, um, Our number three film, I got to admit, I always forget that this was directed by Michael Mann. Um, but it, it does feel like him and yet it's a, it is a step into a whole nother world. Yeah. Too, it's so. just because it's, it's like, Oh yeah. It's just like, this feels um, like for some, you know, Ali, uh, even though it's not a crime film, it, you know, there's, it, there's, it's, it's this, you know, person, I don't know. It, it, Ali feels like it's uh, somewhat more in line with, it fits. with the yeah. other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It fits. But, um, but our number three film last of the Mohicans um, it feels it, it's, it's this sort of weird outlier, but it's um, you know, obviously it's a, it's a stunning movie visually, uh, a, a, you know, critical, uh, critical hit. Um, as Again, well the, as... it's based on a novel, so it's not man's characters that you're experiencing, but the characters right. are very intense, very masculine, men of few words, like that sort of thing. I mean, I can see why it appealed to him because it really does feel like the kind of story he would tell just in a, a, a very undocumented, both in literature and in film, era Mm -hmm. the era of the french english sort of canadian upstate new york territory wars um while all of the east coast native americans were sort of getting pushed to the frontier it's a really interesting time in history and his characters are really sort of fascinating any and him and christopher crow i don't know whose idea it is i suspect it's man's but i don't know two really really good writers christopher crow is top top-notch dude um collaborating on this thing and what they did is they switched the they swapped the the there's two native american slash uh colonial women relationships in the film and they switched them so that the two alpha alpha male and alpha female and the 
beta male and beta female would be together instead of having it all complicated. Mm-hmm. And it's brilliant. I've read this book, the James Finn Moore Cooper novel, which is a bit of a tough read because it's, again, and not because it's not a compelling story because it's great. It's more because it's just this thick, dense sort of period language that is, I struggle mm-hmm. with. Um, but it's it's great and it works great, but the movie almost is better. Like that decision is like a decision someone somewhere along the line, this has been made into a movie several times, should have made <laughs> already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the author should have made it. really feels that right that that uh, Hawkeye, the main character played by Daniel Day-Lewis, and Cora, the main woman played by um, Madeline Stowe, both at the tip-top of their game, at least in terms of Hollywood glamour and sort of period awesomeness the thing Mm -hmm. works best of all because it's got tons of period adventure in it lots of brutal murder lots of brutal loud incredibly loud oscar winning sounding warfare um just great cast of characters a fantastic villain played by uh west duty in an oscar nominated performance uh just a uh, fantastic actor in a career defining role um, and it's got Daniel Day-Lewis, it's got kind of the best actor of his generation playing this matinee idol hero, which mm-hmm. is really fun to see because Daniel only did that the one time that I'm aware of, uh, truly, you know, he kind of been there, done that and he went on to the next thing. It's a romance. That's why it works. Yeah. All that yeah. other stuff aside of which it has in spades, it, the reason this works and the reason it's so high on the list is because the romance works without a lot of chit chat. It's all in the eyes. That was a review I read of it back when it came out. The eyes have it. The clever punny reviewer said no, at the end. There you and, go. Yeah, and I I loved that because they're they're right. These people fall in love with each other just by staring longingly at each other, and it's awesome. And it completely works. <laughs> you completely yeah. buy into it. Yeah, uh, it's kind of you know kind of. Uh, I mean, obviously this. I mean, you could say that the movie Titanic follows this sort of thing. It's, it's, you have this, this giant sweeping epic of a film mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's, that's just the backdrop to a romance the same way, you know, Titanic is this giant megalithic event. You could look um, at it the other way, which is that the romance in Titanic or the romance is particularly in Pearl Harbor, which is the biggest Titanic ripoff that there is, are right. the excuse to tell the story of the disaster. You, that's sure. the human thing that we're gonna we're gonna hold on to. In mm-hmm. Finnamore Cooper's novel and in Man's movie, it's more organic than that. This weird romance happens in spite of their differences, in spite of the world that they're in, in spite of everything. There's nothing perfunctory about it, and it happens, like I say, in ways where it isn't one guy convincing a girl or a girl convincing a guy or a dude. You know, he, they do sort of save their lives. But even yeah. that's not played in a super heroic sort of way. And they're immediately at odds with each other after they've done that. It's, 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 a, it's just beautiful, fascinating. The, the axe and bow and arrow and sort of hatchet violence is incredibly choreographed and compelling. Yep. It, it, it's, it's an amazing movie, I think. I really do think it's incredible. And it was meant to be a giant three-hour thing. And the studio yeah. said, screw this. It can't be like this. We're going to cut this up. And he said, well, let, uh, give me a couple of months. It can't come out in the summer, but give me a couple of months and I will cut it. 
at least let me have a pass at it. Yeah. And it's one of those cases where you really kind of got to believe because I've read the script for it and it's good, but you really kind of got to believe that Last of the Mohicans isn't the smash hit Oscar season film that it ended up being if it were three hours long. Because nobody in 1992, whenever it came out, nobody was making films like this. Braveheart was still years away. And the last time anyone attempted a historical epic of this type was decades ago, like the 70s, truly. So that's what he wanted to make. And he sort of made this concession that he would make it a leaner, meaner adventure film that still had substance in it. And he, he got that. He got it. It's great. And oh, it's good. the one movie where I say we talk about it. I won't, to, to, after singing its praises, I won't just diss on it, but it's the one mover that he does continue to tinker with because there's so much more movie there. Mm-hmm. He's always playing with it. And every time it gets a new director approved transfer, um, he does something different to it. I think now that Fox is owned by Disney, I think you'll see, I don't think Disney will be interested in, giving him the opportunity to do that anymore. I don't sure. think they care. I, they, sure. they went ahead and released, you know, star Wars with McClunky in it, but that had already been done. They're just releasing the most recent version that they had. I don't think that was mm-hmm. something they encouraged. It's just what they had on hand. I, you know, I just don't, I think they're less interested in that. As a matter of fact, I don't think, I think whatever version of last of the Mohicans is out there on uh, Blu-ray or whatever is probably the last one you're going to get. So hop on it. Yep. It's good. Really, um, right. really entertaining and really still it's got all that stuff that he brings to the party too. It's both. That's tough to pull off. Um, okay. So Did I ruin our, your point uh, about the romance? I'm sorry, dude. I didn't mean to do No, that. no, I mean you didn't. You just kind of clarified that yeah, I, you know, where whereas the yeah, whereas the I, I was just thinking of like big epic scope, but our focus is on this romance. And, yeah, and, and you do people. bring up a good point that, you know, that it's the, the, the romance happens very, yeah, very quietly, very, you know, but very intensely. And it's, it's almost as if, yeah. It almost, doesn't take center stage really, but the movie by the time it's over becomes entirely about the love between these last members of this vanishing tribe and these new, newest American colonial daughters. Like it's, yeah, there's also something very metaphorically rich about it that, that I don't think is in those other movies. Not that I don't, we love Titanic here. That was our big disaster right. movie, but it really did feel like this is our way into the story as opposed to, mm-hmm. as opposed to this is remotely believable thing that happened as part of that story. I think if you think about Titanic as ridiculous as it is, the romance, the, the inter economic, Romance is the least believable thing about it, actually. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, uh, all right. Next up, our number two film is uh, The Insider with Russell Crowe and Al Pacino. Well, I don't love The Insider the way I love, like a little boy loves a thing, you know, love uh, Last of the Mohicans. But The Insider was a real candidate for number one on this list. I think it's less iconic. I think it's less on the nuts as to what man is all about as a mm-hmm. storyteller. So I think that's why it's at number two. But The Insider's as good a movie as he's ever made or likely to make. That's the story of a whistleblower for a tobacco company 
who gets wrapped up with a 60 minutes producer and tries to tell doesn't at first he tries to take his severance package go be a school teacher kind of start his life over but he the nature of intimidation and the way these secretive tobacco lawyers and stuff sort of did their business they just kind of keep coming at him and he ends up he has a breaking point that is not where i think those people expected because he's a very soft spoken mild-mannered guy and yet when he's pushed to the edge and his family's threatened he decides to fight back he decides for you know he's first of all because he doesn't do anything to deserve any of the threats and intimidation that he gets truly he completely he knows he signed a legally binding um non you know uh, nda yeah yeah, exactly he can't talk about any of this stuff legally so he doesn't intend to and yet just to, it's just to systematically cover their tracks. This system of non-disclosure and secrecy just kind of beats at him in ways that he can't take anymore, and he turns mm-hmm. to a sixty Minutes producer played by Al Pacino, and Al Pacino's very, very best late period role. I would also argue this is Russell Crowe's best performance ever on film too. He won the Oscar for it, rightfully so. Yeah, he's really terrific. Um, he's really terrific in this film all of his strengths as an actor really really, I mean you know there's Gladiator and some other things some other more movie star things but all his strength as an actor really is in this guy in this wonderful way and you really do care about him and again the film's a typical Michael Mann project it's got incredible uh, speaking about celebrities who aren't anything like their real life counterparts that they play in films but are still awesome uh, top of that list is Christopher Plummer as Mike Wallace. Mm-hmm. Just fantastic performance. Um, and the story is this, it, it, and it came at a time where this super, again, mid-90s, no, early 2000s, um, where this sort of yeah. 70s conspiracy kind of story just really wasn't the kind of thing that they were telling. And right. it has that sense of, paranoia to it um as far as side actors that we love bruce mcgill has one of the greatest speeches i will call it a speech it's more like an explosion in it he plays a mississippi prosecutor who's bringing a case against uh against um the tobacco companies and part of the plan of our heroes is to get get uh crow's character's testimony on the record in the state of mississippi so that when they report the story they have this sort of legitimacy wrapped up in it it's all kind of complicated but it it makes a lot of sense when as the movie explains it to you Mm -hmm. and bruce mcgill you know from animal house and everything else means eight thousand movies but he, he he these kentucky lawyers come down there and they start you know not taking him seriously and i mean he he gives them the smackdown of all smackdowns. I I love a good courtroom drama. This is only about ten minutes of a almost three hour film, but yeah, boy, is it enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, really awesome. yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, yeah. I mean, it is. Uh, you know, um, we've we've talked at great length, and I mentioned many times all the president's men uh, is my is my favorite film. It very much has that. Uh, it, it's very much in that same vein. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the insiders is really terrific. Uh, it's, um, yeah. In fact, I, I like I was looking for the exact quote here and I can't find it. It was like Roger Ebert was, like he was like 
talking about it, saying saying it ha- it was much more impactful uh, to me than all the president's men, um, just simply because uh, you know um, the you know, all the pres you know the Watergate didn't kill my parents, cigarettes did. Wow, Roger. And um, yeah, and wow. uh, I, it, yeah, I. I Hopefully, I didn't butcher that quote too bad. No, but I. But uh, that that's feels like something he would say, and that's really really awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the cigarette industry, you know, it they've they've they're totally different now, and a lot of the reason was because of the thing this guy did. It started an avalanche of accountability for them. Um, you know, they paid their mm-hmm. whatever it was, $4 trillion or some ungodly amount of money back to America and, and America for them admitting that responsibility basically said, OK, go do your thing then. And at least now we're all at least now everything's above board. There's no more of this secret crap. There's no more of any of this. And it shows you that even the cigarette industry, to some degree, because it's still going strong, was purified by that action. And that started with this. We're going to start admitting that you're killing everybody and that you make these more addictive chemically on purpose. It's not just mm-hmm. some byproduct of what you do. It's it's you, you heightened that. That's what this guy, that's the department he worked in. And that's the, the secret that he revealed was that the addictiveness of the thing, not so much the kill, the, the deadliness of it, but the addictiveness of it was a chemically manufactured an enhanced thing. They didn't add mm-hmm. things to it. They just brought the part of it in it out as much as they could that did that. Yeah. And it's stunning. And everybody screws him over. It's 60 minutes ends up screwing him over. It, you know, and he just keeps fighting. It, mm-hmm. it, it, that, that man of integrity, this sort of Ayn Rand style man of integrity, um, it, in an Ayn Rand novel, he would work for the cigarette company as a CEO <laughs> But yes. still, right. it, it still has that man of integrity, man of principle feel to it. And it just works really, really well. And Pacino's character, you know, <laughs> who gets caught in the middle of it, thinks, you know, manipulates this dude, gets him to come out, gets him to act sometimes against his better interest, all because for the truth. And then to find out that the truth's not that important when money is involved. Like for him, the rude awakening of that is very intense. And it's intense to us as we're watching the movie. It's jarring and unforgivable. And and I just, it's really, really, really good, complicated story about complicated stuff that's just super well communicated. And like Joel said, that it more than even that, the mood of the thing, the sense of paranoia that hangs over the thing the sense of behind every door, there's something going on and it, it's people that are out to get us. You really feel that way the whole time you're watching that movie. And I love yep. it for that. So, yep. um, all right. Yeah. Easily could have been number one. Um, but our number one film, um, I mean, to me, it really was never in question because, uh, this film, <laughs> this film is, it's uh, is, the is, Michael Mann movie. Just it really that. is. It really is. And it is 1995's Heat. Yeah. It's like put all these other movies in a blender and pour it out in the right order. You get heat. Uh, our buddy, uh, late friend Gus, called it Cops and Robbers and the Women Who Love Them. <laughs> that's, and that's and to me, that's, that's like the story of all of these. You know, sure, yeah. sure, it's ones in colonial America, but it still has that same 
feel to it, these opposing forces of the law of humanity, whatever, the two, the two rams, button heads throughout the movie, you know, even if mm-hmm. only virtually, uh, that's the thing. It's about this cop played by Al Pacino again and a robber played by Robert De Niro. And, and of all the cop characters, Pacino again is kind of the ultimate one for man. And of all the robber characters, De Niro's character is just this, he's this perfect encapsulation of all these criminals we've seen in all of these stories. Yeah. The total man of honor who at the same time is is prepared, you know, has decided and therefore committed himself knowingly to to take every step imaginable to remain free of the law and is willing to sacrifice anything to do that. And the movie proves that. Yeah. Um, a very experienced cat burglar and a, a robbery cop. Pacino is really fun in it. He's very, very entertaining. He he has a uh, woman he's married to, played by Diane Venora, and I always consider this. She is not the typical Michael Mann uh, leading lady. The 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 nice the nice girl that De Niro meets sort of is, but this this you know she's like an art student sort of perfect thing. Mm-hmm. perfect young thing for Robert De Niro to completely be shaken off of his his very singular track over. Diane Venora, on the other hand, is this most obnoxious sort of L.A. high society, like super, I don't know how to put it. I don't want to, I don't want to um, badger like psychotherapy or anything like that, but she's got like this psychotherapy catchphrase for literally everything in her life. in this way that sure. a guy like Pacino she, yeah, self-help. Would, she, she lives by self-help books. Yeah. It's really, and it it's yeah for a, a sort of self-made hardworking, you know, down in the dregs guy. It's you don't even, in a way you can totally see how they came together, but in mm-hmm. a way they're at the point now where their relationship's sort of poisonous. She has a daughter played by brilliantly by uh, Natalie Portman when she was really young, um, hot off of the professional, and she's so good in it. It it you don't realize at first how important it is that she make her stand every time she's in frame until she becomes the center of the story. But it it's really really well done by a young actor who understands. Um, who understands the vulnerability of this young person. It's hard mm-hmm. to explain, but it's, it's just fantastic. And every role in it, I, I, Ashley Judd's at her best in it, Val Kilmer in Val uh, a name. Ter- Val Kilmer's terrific in this film. It's maybe the best he's ever been. He's so uh, yeah. super cool. Yeah. I'm partial to some other things, like I like Willow and some other things. Right. But, um, but it just as this... You know, it just must have been so cool. Like, you know, again, he's kind of third build in it at a time yeah. when he was his biggest star. But he, he was wise enough to look at it, see who the guy was, and get get it and do it. And be willing to be playing third fiddle to Pacino and mm-hmm. De Niro, who had only ever been in one movie together, Godfather of Two. And because their stories took place in different time periods, they never appeared together. Never they almost never appeared movie. together in this. Right, and then they... <laughs> And then they realized that and went, went, we really need to find a place to have these. Well, guys I think it was, together. it was either, I think it was them that realized it. You got to have these yeah. guys come together at some point. It's cool that you've written these parallel stories for them. You can still have that and have them have a word amongst each other. 
And they spent kind of the whole movie, it was the last thing they shot for it, they spent the whole movie writing it, writing something that would be worth it, while mm -hmm. for Pacino and De Niro's characters to sit down that just wouldn't just be redundant. Yeah. And it and is, again, it's, it actually it, it is works. redundant. The What yeah. happens in that scene is not needed by the movie at all. Nope. But we need no. to see them looking each other in the eye. That's the extra component. I've seen mm -hmm. you, and I've talked to you, and I'm still the same guy I was when I walked in here. Make no Correct. mistake about it. That's and, me paraphrasing. But that, that, yeah. And they can do that because they are both men of a code. Right. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's like, well, why aren't you just arresting him now? Uh, you know, okay. well, you can go away. Aren't you arresting him now? Because he doesn't have the evidence that he needs. He knows he's done everything, but he has nothing to, you know, tie him to it. And De Niro, you know, you're like, well, why, De Niro, why don't you just, you know, either get up and leave or just say, leave me alone or whatever, you know, uh, and, and but no, it's they're men of a code. And it's like, yeah, you come at me with everything you got. I'm going to come at you with everything I've got. And whoever wins, wins. It's the code and, that that yeah. that shatters De Niro's plan eventually. Yeah. And, and that gets him to, frankly, do something other than what he's saying he's going to be doing the whole time. Yeah. And, you know, and that's tragic in a way. It has the stuff of Greek tragedy in it because of that. It yeah. really does. It has it has some really terrible violence in it um but again all these guys who've been in these michael mann movies are they're all in this uh west duties in it they're, you know yeah. it, it's got this multi-ethnic uh dennis haysbert's best movie um mm -hmm. michael t williamson oh um, michael t williamson when michael t williamson is he's so good in it when he's uh when he's talking to Ashley Judd and he's basically manipulating her into turning in Val Kilmer, her boyfriend. And she's like, what else are you selling? Is what she says, an ultimate sort of Michael Mann damsel thing to say to him. And what mm -hmm. does Michael T. Williamson say? He says all kinds of shit, but I don't need to sell this because we both know this shit sells itself. You're, you know, <laughs> he, he, and he yeah. looks over and he doesn't even say it. He just looks over at her little boy playing over in the corner with all these other armed guys standing around her and she just knows it's, yep. it's that is a work of crime story poetry the whole movie is like that it's a joy to behold and yet when it means to slap you in the face and get a strong reaction out of you it knows how to do it every time it's mm -hmm. it's uh it's it's the ultimate as i say the ultimate refinement of him and somehow emotionally not in one not in two not in three but four storylines he manages to get to the emotional impact of everything maybe not to the degree that some movies do but to the degree that this movie reasonably could achieve he does it every time and mm -hmm. that's to me even more than the insider that's sort of what sets it apart it's I thought it was the best movie of the year, although I hadn't seen last week's show. We talked about Dead Man Walking, which came out the same year. I hadn't seen that movie yet, mm. but which it, which ultimately I think is is better. But yeah, Heat is For, really really good. It's really it's, good. It's really really good, and it's really really entertaining. Um, it's yeah, it is a it's a super film. Before we close the book book on Heat. And then, you know, and on Michael Mann's films, uh, you know, so he started at the screenplay um, was it was supposed to be for a television series, a television pilot. And um, and that ended up becoming a television movie called L.A. Takedown. It's L.A. Takedown. 
if you're a Heat super fan, if you're a Michael Mann super fan, this is the only directorial piece of his that we have not talked about, so it's worth bringing up here. But Heat, mm-hmm. Heat is this, they have the same story. They're the same story. The crime's yeah. the same. Everything's basically the same. Uh, Heat is expanded. The ensemble is expanded to be bigger and more important. It, you know, it's a bigger, broader, more, yeah. has much more grandeur to it. But it's funny that the, that the story itself comes from this old 1986, like kind of Miami vice spinoff is what it was supposed to be. That takes place in yeah. LA between similar sorts of cops and robbers. Um, and all that ever ended up being was a pilot that aired as a movie of the week. Yeah. Um, it's, it's neat to me that he, for all its epicness started as this crime show pilot. That That's cool. It's called LA takedown. And because yeah, Michael LA Mann takedown. directed it, it's out there. You can see it. It's, it's also called LA crime wave. It's also called <laughs> made in LA. Um, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the DVD cover. Cause obviously after heat, they're yeah. like, get this out there. We need, you know, <laughs> and it was like, right. Call it something your- different and people will buy it again. Yep. Uh, from the director of Heat, Michael Mann. Hannah is the cop and the heat and heat is like <laughs> as big as the title size and in, and, and uh, stretched out <laughs> different font and in bright red. And the heat is on. Hey, LA Mike, Takedown. we don't hold that against you. We get that. No, that's not that's not on Michael Mann at all. That's just that's, that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. them trying to trying to, you know, it's like those selling of. uh of Beauty and the Beast DVDs uh, of the, that, that were made by some cheap animation company yeah. <laughs> and trying to convince people that, oh, yeah, no, this is the Disney film. It's still in theaters. Yeah, don't come right out and say that. But Yep. Um, yeah, yep. but it's still a Michael Mann film. Um, so that, yeah, so that'll do it. Uh, Heat, uh, yeah, Heat, our number one Michael Mann film. Um, and you think we're wrong? Because we're not. And you know what? I'm not even going to invite you to write us at Ask Joel and Ryan yeah, uh, at Twitter and Instagram or go to the Facebook page, the movie show with Joel and Ryan, or to comment on the YouTube video if you're watching us on YouTube. I'm not even going to ask you to do that because you know what? We're right. Um, We're so right that we went against even our own instincts to make sure the heat was number one because it really is iconic. Yeah, and it hasn't been bettered, and it is not likely to. Again, maybe Michael Mann's best movies yet to come. It's possible he's still making he, movies. Yep, this is, is uh, this isn't uh, the John set. Candy list. This is more of a Sigourney Weaver list. Where yep, he uh, is set his next project is uh, apparently there is a HBO series coming out called Tokyo Vice, and Michael Mann directs episode one. Cool. So I'll watch that. Um, uh all right um we got a little bit of time left how about some hot takes ryan let's do it let's get some hot takes 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 all right here we go okay um all right so these uh all come these are not my high hot takes uh they all come from TikTok. This is the hot takes TikTok edition. Nice. Um, which we're gonna see how my week goes. We might end up with a TikTok presence by the end of the week. <laughs> okay. We're gonna now see. I'll leave that to you. That's that's on me. That's if I if I decide to take on uh yet more stuff that uh, <laughs> I won't get I don't get paid for. <laughs> um, but I have fun doing it. Indeed. Um, all right. I believe you pay for the privilege of being a equal partner in the movie show with Joel and Ryan. <laughs> That's true. That's if I, I, I have to check my finances to make sure of that, but 
<laughs> yep. Um, all right. This uh, first one comes from uh, this hot take comes from uh, C Girl 108 on TikTok and it, uh, is in regards to Jurassic Park. Yeah. <laughs> and her, her hot take is, and I, I do like this one, Nedry complains the entire time, the entire movie, about how unappreciated he is and how cheap, you know, how he should be making tons more money. And he uses it for a justification for stealing the embryos to, to sell off to the in-gen competitor. However, by the end of the movie, a 12-year-old is able to break, you know, crack the code and reboot and uh, get the whole system up and running, saving everybody. So really, pretty much any basic computer person with a little bit of training could have done it. Um, thus, again, um, you know, uh, really illustrating Nedry's, um, you know, Nedry's villainy as a character. Look, when Nedry's system's running at the top of the movie, nobody's getting eaten by anything. There is that. When it shuts down, all hell breaks loose. It's more than just nature survives. It's this complicated system without it in place. You're you're just you're just that away from being eaten alive by something that's higher on the food chain than you. So yeah. in a way, he you know, what's his face is out of money. This is played out more in the book than it is in the story. But the right. guy who's running the show has put every last penny and then some into this thing and doesn't have anything else to give this guy. But he's also paid him pretty well to do this. And it's sort of Nedry's own financial irresponsibility that's put him in this spot. But And again, I'm talking about this from the terms of the book rather than the movie. We'll get to the movie in a second. But you know, in the book, it all shows you that the economic realities of our world and dinosaurs from prehistory don't mix, just like they don't mix uh, easily with anything in the modern mm -hmm. world. That's the point of the thing. And this is just another way in which that's shown. The little girl knowing how to reboot the system, because I think in the book it's really just you go, you go to where they go in that basement and flick the switch like what Ellie does, and it just starts up itself. Yeah. That's the mission. Yeah. It's not some little girl going, I recognize, you know, Linux or whatever. Oh, I know this system and yeah, I can. Yeah. But, you know, they're trying to give a little girl agency and be the hero of the moment. I, in a movie, that movie's pretty good. So I don't mind that. Um, yeah. What was the premise of this hot take? I'm sort of skirting around that. Oh, it just was, it just was, uh, you know, once it, it was just kind of showing. Oh, that Nedry's Nedry, system Nedry's couldn't hubris. have been worth much because a little girl figured out how to reboot it. Said, yeah. well, yeah, a 12-year-old can figure out how to you know, do it. So you know, that spoken, I'll just say this, and I like your hot take, it's fun, but spoken like somebody who's not on an island with a bunch of man-aiding dinosaurs, I have to say. Duncan. That's fair. You know what? I think that's a fair rebuttal. Yeah. It's a fair rebuttal. Um, all right, next I'll take, one. Uh, I'll next take Nedry's software functioning anytime if, if that's what's between me and them. Hell yes. Um, this next one uh, was one of the, it was a TikTok that made me um, laugh out loud. Uh, I watched it several times. It's from uh, a, a, a young uh, person named uh, Cinemegan uh, at nice. Cinemegan. She is a that. film student. Awesome. She's a film student, I believe at Harvard or something like that, but she wow. was breaking down. She We're going to be doing paper. her top 10 list in a few years. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you she, for warning me she, about that. I'll be a little more respectful than maybe I would have. Yeah. Been. Well, she did a she did a, <laughs> a, she did a TikTok based on on um, uh, like a little paper that she wrote um, that Jurassic Park passes the Bechdel test. 
It does. Uh, and the Beck and uh, the Bechtel test, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with the Bechtel test, it's it's, you know, the representation of women on screen and whether the women are just on screen as a functionary to tell the man's story. And, right. To pass um, the test, you have to have two women having a conversation about something that is not a man. Right. Which doesn't right. seem like get, a very high bar to, no. to cross. And yet. <laughs> Most Almost, movies don't manage films it, fail. honestly. Yep. Um, yeah. and, but she says, Jurassic Park passes the Bechdel test. If you remember that all dinosaurs are female. <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes on to talk about, you know, she's like, sure, we have Ellie and and uh, what's your face, little girl. Uh, they have a conversation about we got to get this booted up. Hey, oh, I, I can boot this computer up and let's get in there together. That's the and one so I was have thinking that one. of, yeah. Yeah, but then they also have you know, like she points out when the the two raptors go into the kitchen area where the two kids are hiding, and they're like, ah, and she's like, look at these two boss ladies. They're not talking about men. They're talking about dinner, and and like when uh, when the girl is talking to the brachiosaurus, uh, you know, making noise and the brachiosaurus sneezes on her. I, we're going to be really loose with the idea of a conversation, but that sneeze I think was, hey, we're cool. Um, so yeah. Yeah, so Jurassic Park passing the Bechdel test. That's the hot take. Sure. What might I argue yep. with Cinemegan? She's got it all figured out. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I love that. I saw take. that one. That made me that made me laugh out loud yeah, that's a good uh, one. really, really hard. It's <laughs> a good one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, this next one is from at Marion Cosplays. Two sisters working it out. That's I like that. A lot. That's I'm not going to be able to watch that scene in the future without thinking about. I know that. I'm going to be like they're like mm, you want some dinner? Yeah, oh yeah. It's like oh feminism. There you go. Awesome. Um, <laughs> at Mary Cosplay uh, talks about um, and this this really plays into and I think this is really uh, this hot take is prescient with uh, especially what's going on on Disney Plus and the Marvel Cinematic Universe and doing these series that that all tie in and all of this being part of it. Um, she says no movie benefits from being 90 minutes at this, you know, at this point, because if it's going to, if you're just going to make a movie that's 90 minutes, just make it a mini series at this point, <laughs> just put it on, uh, just put it on one of the, uh, on a, uh, make it a streaming series um, and just put it on there. Because what, you know, it's like, it's almost saying, I get, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, uh, extrapolating from her hot take that, you know, 90 minutes just isn't worth the time well, it takes to go to a, a movie theater and take, you know, take something in. There's and, a, there's a thought process that goes with that. Like that, that, that you make something, you know, you make something crappy that's short and sweet, like Jonah Hex and it's 88 minutes or whatever. And it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. There's no value in it. And it feels that way. It feels like it's over before it starts. You know, uh, we've talked about that, that very few filmmakers set out to make a 90 minute, tell a 90 right. minute story. It usually suggests something's been omitted. But I, before we turned on the show, I watched Steven Spielberg's Duel, which was a TV movie, which was less than 90 minutes, it was 88 minutes. And last night I watched George Lucas's first movie, which is also 90 minutes, THX 1138. And they're awesome. They don't feel like there's anything missing or whatever. So it, it's 90 minutes. It can be done. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, have there been any 98 minute MCU movies? There aren't any that I can think of. They've all been, I don't think there's been any sub two hour ones other than Thor, the dark world. I think that's the shortest. No, one. no. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I, I think this was, um, 
Yeah, I think this I think this was I, I only bring it up because I, I don't think she's talking directly in the and I'm assuming, yes, I believe if I remember correctly, this is uh, she is uh, female uh, presenting. Uh, but um, I don't think that she was referring to the MCU specifically, but I think it was part of the larger conversation of we have all of these outlets now for these stories that the movies cinema should you know, if you're only going to make something that's 90 minutes cinema like putting it up on the big screen where people I, have to come to it yeah pay for you know pay for the drive there pay for it i get what you're you know, saying uh, but it, it it's not I, I get what you're saying and i've said a similar thing for years joel knows 90 minutes nobody makes a 90 minute movie beware the 90 minute movie that's the term yeah. i use all the time that said it that doesn't that's not what the big screen it doesn't preclude something from being awesome or cinematic or worth being on a big screen or worth being shared with a large audience that nothing about it prevents that. So I have to disagree with this hot take pretty much completely, even though I sort of understand where it, mm-hmm. where it comes from in the gut. Like I really do. And just because you have a streaming service to dump something on doesn't mean that that's necessarily the best place for it to be. And it's runtime really isn't, it's maybe a factor, but it's very, it's several, several rungs down on the ladder. That I was, think. that was my takeaway from it too, is as I get that, I get that take, but um, yeah, factoring in runtime as to whether something should be a theatrical release, that would be, uh, that would be really far down on the list. Yeah. Um, but And streaming isn't where you should take. dump something, you know, look at WandaVision and Loki even, I mean, look at, Look at what a lower budget and more time gets you. It, it, it allows you to take so many more narrative and thematic chances than you would. And that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the beauty of having a lower budget and having more time is that you, you and having, you know, the difference between, uh, well, I always use this phrase because I think it's so fantastic that the two people who created uh, The Good Wife and uh, the good fight now on uh, speaking of streaming services on, on Paramount Plus, um, they said that writing a film is like running a marathon, and writing for TV is like running until you die. <laughs> and they were yeah. what they were. This was when Good Wife was going off the air, and they were just like, "We've tried to keep this show as good as you can, but all TV shows run until they." die they just run and run and run and run and they all die somehow and it's great to be have some control over how they die because most of the time you don't and it's great to to think that you stayed good the whole time and that you ended on a high note but even when you have control achieving that with even your best intentions and all the creative juices you have left isn't always doable like it's they just recognize the reality of how difficult serialized television is but the charm of it is the same thing that Michael Mann or David Lynch or whomever, and it's certainly true of the Disney Plus things of of Mandalorian of some shows mm-hmm. that had their birthplaces in large cinema and now are small screen events. Is that you can do different things. That's the that's the coolest thing about it is you're just you really can't do the same three act heroic championship bit again and again and again and again, or, or you get sick of it after a couple of episodes. Yep. You've got to do something different. And that's what is to love about it. You know, I'm sick of all of it. We're talking about MCU specifically, but even just all of this stuff. It's just like it's, I'm getting tiring of it. But it's it's neat to see it on TV, even though 
on TV, you know, 10 episodes of this, 10 episodes of that, 10 more of this, 10 more of that. You, it, it gets old quicker. You become less forgiving of it. Mm-hmm. So there's some challenges built in. But the great thing is that there could be no WandaVision movie that just couldn't exist. There's no chance yep. that they could have done that in a cinematic forum. So instead of playing to the weaknesses and putting the bad stuff here and the good stuff there, you know, look at what the strengths of each thing are and try and yeah. bring that out of it every time as best you can. That's all we can act ask of the creative people out there, I think. Yeah, that's great. All right, folks, that is going to do it for us for this week. Uh, and uh, do you know what we have? Do we have our topic for next week? Can we tease something? I don't think we do. We Unless don't you have... just thought of something. No, I didn't just think of something, but I'm trying to remember if we had any other guests coming up very soon here. Um, we got nothing. No, we, we got yeah, nothing we... But, the, but the cold, blank, white page of doom and the endless horizon without a, so much as a cactus in sight. Well, then I will say uh, I will I will reiterate what I, uh, what we said at the very top <laughs> of the show. Dear listener, you are so wonderful. Indeed. And if there's something you would you would like us to talk about, hey, if you want to talk about it with us, you uh, you should reach out to us at all the things I mentioned earlier. I'll say them again at Ask Jill and Ryan on Twitter and Instagram. The movie show with Jill and Ryan page on Facebook. And uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, comment below comment and like and subscribe and do all of the clicking and the thumbs and everything coming soon to tiktok right joel and possibly i had an idea earlier today as i was going through and (laughs) and i I was like i need one more hot take and so i was on tiktok uh again this morning i'm like hey and i saw like some i'm like oh well there's a way i could uh i could uh you know put some put us on there we'll see we'll see how industrious (laughs) i get this week Uh, I had a busy week this week. Uh, I have no reason to think that next week won't be as busy. So chances are we won't be on TikTok. We appreciate you hanging with us. I'll let you know. Um, All right, folks. We really do appreciate you being uh, being with us today on the movie show with Joel and Ryan. And until next week, we'll see you later. Bye. Happy birthday, Klug. Woohoo! Thank you for listening to the movie show with Joel and Ryan. Remember, all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now, here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out. If we wanted Klug to come, we would have should have, should have done best benevolent zombies or best Bette Midler cameos or <laughs> I don't know something different than Michael Mann films. I suspect, but happy birthday, pal! <laughs> oh my god.